Welcome to City on a Hill Church, Forest Hills podcast. We exist to lead people to love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life. We're glad you're here, and thanks for listening. More information on the life and mission of City on a Hill Church can be found at coahforesthills.org. Uh, one reason we do, you know, we may, if you come to church a few times and you're like, why do we say this is the word of the Lord, thanks be to God, just... We do that because we want to be reminded that we come to sit under God's Word. We believe it's authoritative. We believe that it, that it teaches us. And so we are coming with a posture of saying, Lord, teach us from your Word. And so uh, sometimes if you're new to church, some things we do, that's, that's a little interesting. And so we want to try to explain those things every once in a while uh, to be helpful. Uh, now, if the book of Genesis had a subtitle, it might be Bad Decisions. Um, if you look over and over again, we see people making bad decision after bad decision after bad decision. Uh, but we also see that God is faithful in the middle of our sinful choices. And if we kind of recapped uh, Genesis, we would see, really starting in Genesis 3, a, a multitude of bad decisions. Genesis 3, the bad decision of all bad decisions. Uh, Adam and Eve take the fruit, they eat of it, and they just mess everything up. And you may be wondering, well, what's the big deal about eating a piece of fruit? Well, God told them not to. And, uh, and they disobeyed God and believed that what the fruit would give them was something that God was holding out on them for. And so they believed that they could be in control, that they could, could have everything, that they could say what was right and wrong, and they wanted God's spot. And so, uh, so they messed up there and it led to all sorts of trouble. And we see this same pattern repeat throughout the Old Testament. We see in Genesis 4, where God told Cain that his sacrifice wasn't uh, a worthy sacrifice, but if, the, if he did well, he would be accepted and instead of choosing to believe the Lord and trust the Lord, he ends up killing his brother. Then we see that things continue to get worse in Genesis 6 through 8, where the world has just fallen into a deep, deep despair, into oppression and injustice. And the, the flood comes and Noah says, hey, if you'll all turn back and you'll trust in the Lord, you can be saved. They fail to do so. Genesis 9, we see Noah ends up making the same mistakes where he doesn't trust the Lord and falls into sin. Genesis 11, we see that they try to build a tower to get to God. And so we see, man, at what point will they learn to quit making terrible decisions? And we see Abram's family, who's to be this called and chosen family, seems to continue the pattern. Uh, we see that in Genesis chapter 12, that Abram lost focus on the promises that God had given him like 45 seconds ago and ends up falling into some decisions based on fear. He makes fearful decisions, believing that God is not going to provide. Chapter 13 and 14, we see that Lot, because of his greed for more, falls into some terrible circumstances, almost loses his life, almost gets sold into slavery, and yet God comes through, through the work of Abram and saves him. And over and over and over again, we see the faithfulness of God. We see the faithfulness of God in our terrible decision-making, and we also see that not only does the Bible repeat this pattern over and over again, we repeat this pattern over and over again. There are times where you and I stop trusting God. We, we stop believing that God is faithful. We stop believing that God is good. We stop believing that God is going to provide or bring us through. Uh, there are times where we move away from the presence of God. We're struggling. The last thing we want to do is be at church. The last thing we want to do is pick up our Bible or pray. And so we run from the very things that God says will give us life. We end up making decisions on our own because we feel like we're missing out or we're jealous or we get hard-hearted or it's our selfish ambition or we're fearful or greedy and we make these decisions. And in chapter 16, we see another reason that we tend to make decisions and that's because we're impatient. Impatience leads to bad 
decisions. This past Thursday, I was downtown at the RMV, and as soon as I said the word RMV, you knew impatience was coming into the picture. Uh, the RMV is just like the seventh ring of hell. Like, I don't know what to tell you. It is a terrible place. It's inefficient. Um, if you've tried to go down to the one at Haymarket, it is a mess right now. I mean, they, you can't even get into the building. The Jeep, Google's wrong. And so there's nowhere to go. So I, I walked around for 30 minutes trying to figure out where I was going. I finally go in. I get upstairs. and I, I get the, the most talkative person on the planet. But not just talkative, but awkward. So awkward and talkative. Just, it's a tough combo. And so we're, we're trying to work this thing out, trying to get this issue figured out. And I finally get this done, and I'm really trying to get finished because I'm trying to get to a swim meet. It's my daughter's last swim meet of the year, and I'm really struggling. And so then I get to go to the orange line, which, you know, is just the picture of efficiency. And so I go to the orange line, I, I get there, and I look at the sign, and it says three stops away. And I'm at this point listening to a playlist that is songs of comfort for anxious souls. And that's what I'm listening to to try to calm myself down. And I look up 20 minutes later, and it still says the Forest Hills train is three stops away trying to wrestle with this, like, okay, God, I'm, what am I going to do here? I'm late for this thing. So finally, after 30 minutes, I say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave. I'm going to go outside. I'm going to call an Uber, and I'm going to go. I walk right outside of, of the little ticket area, and I say to a guy who's walking through, I said, hey, just so you know, the train's not coming. I don't know what's going on. And I look up and see in the reflection of the mirror, the orange line Forest Hills train coming. So I turn around and run and sprint back through, jump onto the train. My heart is beating. I need more cardio. I'm having a hard day. I get off the train. Okay, I'm just unloading. I'm unpacking for all of you here. Thank you, pre-therapy. I'm flustered. I'm so flustered. I'm annoyed. I get off the Orange Line train at Roxbury Crossing. I start walking and then realize I've walked a half mile in the wrong direction. And so I'm sitting here wondering what led to this, and it's that impatience led to my bad decisions. If I had been just a little more patient, the train would have come. If I had just waited and trusted the Google app, it would have come. The inability to wait upon the promises of God leads us to some really bad decisions, especially when we try to take things into our own hands. Has there ever been a time in your life where you just wish you'd have waited a little bit longer? I've just waited and been a little more patient, but I just trusted the Lord a little bit more. And what we try to do in those moments is we often, we take control. We, we just try to grab control. We end up messing things up worse than they already are And something that I've found over the years is that God's timing is almost always slower than our timing. God, we are very rarely ahead of God's pace. And if the God of the universe who knows all things and orchestrates all things and works out all things for our good and his glory is moving slower than us, what does that tell us? That we should move at his pace and that we can wait upon the Lord. Sometimes it feels like you have to make an immediate decision. And there are times like small stuff, you've got to make a decision. But what I've found is that when it comes to the big stuff, we can generally be patient. We can definitely be a lot more patient than we think we can. And it's usually not a good idea to make a hurried decision from a hurried heart. And what we see when God calls us to wait is that he's shaping and crafting a heart to trust him. And we see how he does this in Abram and his family who've been waiting for a son for a really long time. They've been waiting for this promised son. And this morning, we're going to look at how their impatience led to all sorts of pain and all sorts of trouble for his family, but also how God rescues us out of this. So three ideas we're going to look at today. Number one, the context of an impatient decision. Number two, the consequences of an impatient decision. 
then lastly, the grace of God when we make an impatient decision. So firstly, let's look at the context of this impatient decision. Chapter 16, verse 1, we see where it says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. This poses a massive, massive problem for the promises of God. Here they are. They've waited a very long time. God has promised the son all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. I'm going to make a great nation out of you. Well, there has to be a starting point for a nation. You've got to have one son. So they're waiting for this, and they are still waiting. At this point, it has been about 10 years. Abram is 85. Uh, Sarah, we believe, is about 75. So the, the clock is ticking. Time seems to be running out. God has promised this. Chapter 15, God reassured them that even though the time seems short, I'm still going to come through. And so here, Abram is at a crossroads. Last week in chapter 15, verse 6, it said, and he believed the Lord. So Abram believed God when he reassured him. But yet here here in chapter 16, verse 1, that is being put to the test. He believed that God is going to come through, but when real life hits him in the face, when everything seems impractical, his faith gets tested. Would he believe God when the chances seem to be fading? Would he believe God? And he's wondering, is this ever going to happen? And so not only is Abram at a crossroads, we see that Sarai is at a crossroads. Every day was probably a reminder of pain for Sarai. Barrenness in the ancient world, as we've said, was often considered a curse. It was considered that you did something wrong. You're at odds with God. Um, This was just kind of broadly across culture, not what the Bible says. And so to be barren in the ancient world would have been devastating. Because culturally, and across cultures across the world, your value as a woman at that time was basically the sum of the children that you had. Your ability to have children was your worth, it was your capital, it was your livelihood to be able to have a household for your husband. And so psychologically, this would have been absolutely crushing for Sarai. She's sitting there every day for year after year after year wondering, is God going to come through? And so in this culture, it meant that if you had no children, you had no value. She probably was also struggling in relation to God. God had made this promise this is going to happen. She's married to Abram, so of course she's naturally going to be the source of the son, and she's just wondering, man, what am I doing wrong? How, how am I failing? How am I failing to believe God? Am I not reading enough? Am I not praying enough? Am I not doing enough? Maybe I'm just not part of the plan. And sometimes we, we, we think the same thing when life seems to be falling apart, and we wonder, what did I do to cause this bad circumstance? If I was doing all the right things and praying all the right things and and sinning less, then maybe my life would look perfect and neat and all tied up with a little bow. But what you realize is that because we live in a broken world, it doesn't always work that way. Sometimes it's just the fact that the world is broken. Sarah is experiencing that. But also, this also highlights the problems in her relationship with Abram. If you look back at chapter 12, their relationship is already pretty fractured. Chapter 12, I mean, I would imagine that trying to give your wife away to another man as her, his wife would probably cause some trouble, right? That there, that's going to be a relational problem that every day, like, do you remember that time that you, try, you know, that that's going to be an issue? They're, it's already fractured. They are struggling. And here Abram declares, God is going to give us a son. In chapter 15, God came to me again and he promised, he reassured that he's going to give us a son. But here they have experienced 10 years of monthly letdown. 10 years of disappointment. 10 years of doubting and wondering. And here she is at 75 years old beyond 
the ability to have a child, and she is desperate and helpless. And in the ancient world, in fact, some cultures, if a woman had been barren for 10 years, the husband could divorce her. When you're at the point of waiting, faith, what you say you believe, gets tested. When nothing seems to be working out or it doesn't seem to be coming through, you begin to ask the questions, is God really for me? Is God really enough? Will he really satisfy? Will he really come through? And when we have this moment, this crossroads that we're often brought to, we have a decision to make. We can obey and trust God even when our circumstances tell us not to, even when we can't see the outcome, or we can choose to take things into our own hands. And when we're impatient and we try to seize control, we see the damage that it brings. Look at the end of verse 1. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. Now here's where the problem starts. Beginning in chapter 2, or verse 2. And Sarah said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. Now, this may seem really odd to us. You hear this and go, what in the world is going on? But to the original hearer, this would have made perfect sense. Now, let's, let's kind of put this in reverse. I want you to imagine something that exists today that somebody, you know, 4,000 years ago would have had no clue what you were talking about. C.S. Lewis says we all tend to be snobs when it comes to time because we, we tend to judge other people and other times a lot more harshly. But let's put this in reverse. Imagine the word internet. Imagine someone 4,000 years ago trying to understand internet. You and I understand what the internet is. I watched a video from 30 years ago where on the Today Show, they were trying to ask the question. They said, what's this little A with a circle around it? Is it about? Is it at? Is it an animal? Like, what is it? Like, no one knows what it, knew what it was. And finally, Greg Gumbel just at one point says, you know, it, what, what's the internet anyway? He had absolutely no clue. So imagine being around 2000 BC trying to understand what the internet is. They had no clue. So let's put that for us. We don't understand what's going on here, but this practice would have been very normal for anybody living across the world. Not that it was right, but it was common. It was an almost universal practice that a woman could give her servant as a wife for her husband in order to have more children. And so Hagar is given by her master, Sarai. And he gives her as a second-class wife to produce children. Now, Sarai does this. Why? Look at verse 2. So that it may be that I shall obtain children by her. Now, who is she having children for? Not Abram. Not Hagar. But for her, literally, that means to build a household through her. Because what would a child mean for her? It would mean that she had value. It would mean that she had worth. It would mean that she had meaning and purpose. Now, I want to be really, really clear as I talk about this. The Bible's not condoning this in any way. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24 is the pattern for human relationship in a marriage that it was one man and one woman for the flourishing of, 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 of the world. And so what this shows us is that just because something is culturally acceptable doesn't mean that it's good. Just because something is culturally normal, that can't define what we believe is biblical faithfulness. And so here, polygamy, and really any other action, always leads to pain. 
This ends up devaluing women. It's a threat to family stability. And so when you hear this, you're like, man, why would you include this part? Why would you include this part, this, this seeming cultural, you know, just giving in, this cultural comp- compromise? It's because the Bible shows us as we clearly are. It shows the heroes of the Bible all of their victories, but also all of their flaws. Just in, just in the last chapter, we saw that Abram believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. And here we see him making a really, really stupid mistake. Because the Bible is frank. It is brutal. It is no holds barred about what we are like. And what it tells us is what Alistair Begg says is that God is the God of ordinary human beings. It shows us that Abram and Sarah's moments of trust and their moments of greatest failure, that God can still work in and through them. And what that means is that God is a God of ordinary people like you and me, even when we make the most impatient mistakes. Even when we do awful, devastating, stupid things, there is grace to be had from God. And like Abram and Sarah, we so often try to take God's will and make it happen by our own efforts. What are you waiting on God for? You might even be battling a sinful desire, a sinful pattern in your life. And your greatest desire is you just want it to go away, and so you're like, I either want this to go away, or I just kind of want to give in to it. But Paul in the New Testament talked about a thorn in his flesh which actually kept him weak and dependent. What if God is teaching you how to be weak and dependent upon him? Maybe you're longing for a companion. and You begin to wonder if I just lower godly standards, that would would work. But I think there's a call for us to, to have long obedience in the same direction, to trust that God will work in us. And realize that no matter what status you have relationally, what God is doing is he's shaping you into the person that he wants you to be. Maybe you're in a tough season and you're wondering, when will this end? And you just kind of want to hit the eject button. You want to run. You want to hide. You want to isolate. We need to remember this, that in our waiting, God knew Sarah was barren. And in fact, he knew that Sarah was barren because she was barren before God made the call for Abram. He was going to work through her and through him and was doing so in such a way that they would call upon him in their waiting. Micah 7, 7 says, But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. So just a couple of practical takeaways from this I just want to mention. First of all, is past mistakes shouldn't keep you from obeying today. We see a, a past mistake that Abram and Sarai made, really that Abram made, um, that led to this. Hagar, if we look at chapter 12, was likely part of the bride price that Pharaoh paid in order to receive Sarai. So they made a mistake back then, their disobedience then, and they are now using that to justify their current disobedience. You don't have to do this. Maybe you've made some mistakes in the past. Maybe you're even living out the consequences of a bad decision. You can choose obedience today. You don't have to let past mistakes define your obedience today. Secondly, is that hurt people hurt people. You've probably heard that phrase before. Decisions made from a place of hurt really are good decisions. Sarah is tired. She's embarrassed. She's got some major trust issues. And she turns right around and hurts and abuses Hagar. How are you wounded and how is this affecting how you treat other people? Secondly, let's look at the consequences of an impatient decision. There's all sorts of consequences that come from this. We see some relational issues bubble to the surface, massive relational problems for everybody involved in the story. 
We see this happen with Hagar in verse 4. We see a type of false pride that comes up. And it says, and he went into Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on, contempt on her mistress. Now, why the word contempt? The word contempt there means to treat lower than or to look down upon. She has contempt for her because Sarah used her in order to get a child and that this would be Sarah's child, not her own. And so here's, here's Hagar saying, I'm going to be a second-class wife. Why should I be second-class when I'm the one that can have kids? I should be number one. And she begins to look with contempt upon Sarah. Pride is a great cover for our pain. It's a great cover for when we don't admit that we've made a mistake or don't want to admit that we've made a mistake. And when we rush into a decision, we can pridefully try to defend ourselves instead of admitting our part in the problem. The second way this brings uh, relational problems is false blame. Sarah in verse 5, she is hot. And I really do, I really do have incredible compassion for Sarah. I really feel for her. She's desperate. It says in verse 5, it says, she said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. Here's a woman who turns to polygamy as a solution to her problem, knowing it's going to cost her a lot. And you can feel the anguish as she says this to Abram. She says, I gave my servant to your embrace. That's a very intimate word. She thinks that she's getting into a business transaction that's going to get her a child. And here she realizes that this actually is a heart-wrenching cost that she's having to pay. The plan's not working out like she thought it would, and so she decides to shift the blame over to Abram, which, let's be honest, he's not innocent here. He's not like, oh, okay. No, he's, he is not innocent. And she says, this is your fault. This is your fault that this happened. She had conceived, and she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. She is mad, and she's shifting all the blame over to Abram. When we're faced with the consequences, consequences of our decisions, it's easy to shift the blame to other people. It's your fault that I'm mad. You don't understand me. That's, that's, why, this, that's why we're in this situation. My boss is just way too demanding. Impatient decisions rarely are made with a clear head, and they rarely do we count the cost. Rarely do we, do we take responsibility in them. So we can, see, we can see false pride, false blame, but also false peace. Verse 6, Abram said to Sarah, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. You know, you and Hagar should just go out for a cup of coffee and work this out. Yeah, maybe some boba tea. Do something. You know, you guys, you guys work this out. I'm going to be like Switzerland. I'm going to be neutral. He tries to wash his hands of it. And what Sarah does is she treats her horribly. See what a coward that Abram is here. He could have said no. He, he could have said, no, look, this isn't God's plan for us. We're not going to do this. But once he messed up and, and, and did this, he tries to wash his hands of it. He could have dealt with the consequences. But instead, he uses and hurts both of them. And Sarah and Hagar are responsible for their actions, but they're also both victims of Abram's inability to be courageous. Sometimes we want to keep the peace. Well, really what we're doing is just avoiding conflict. We have a false peace because we don't really want to be at odds with anybody else, and this just leads to further pain. 
So we see relational consequence. We also see long-term consequences. This actually leads to generations of conflict. If you look through the story of the Bible and really just into human history, you see this, that Ishmael and the future son Isaac are going to be at odds for a really long time. They're going to be enemies. They're enemies throughout the book of Genesis. And also, if you look at the, at the religion of Islam, they trace their heritage back to Ishmael. And so in the Bible and in history, the, the Muslim people and the Hebrew people are at odds and are still at war today. It comes back to this conflict. We see family patterns. In fact, his grandson Jacob does the exact same thing. When you make dis- impatient decisions, it ends up hurting other people. We can use people instead of serving. We can use people as a means to an end. And when we make an ungodly decision, even if it's well-intentioned, even if it's culturally normal or practical, it can still hurt other people. So Aram and his family, they've made a mess of this whole thing. They made a complete mess. And this morning, you might be feeling like you're in a similar place, that because of the decisions you've made, maybe just some impatience on your part, your life's kind of a mess. So how does God bring this family together? How does God put all the pieces together? And that's that the grace of God is there for an impatient decision. When we blow up our lives, even when we make the biggest mistakes, God pursues us with his grace. And for Abram and Sarai, God is still going to give them a son. We're going to be talking about over the next couple of weeks about how God, through years and years of waiting and ups and downs and faltering and moments of faith, God still provides a son But now, because of their decision, they're going to face some unnecessary pain. They're going to face some pain they wouldn't have had to face. And this is why God wants us to trust Him and to obey in the first place, so that we don't have to experience pain that we could have otherwise avoided. God is still going to work here because He is faithful. And when you look at your life and when I look at my life, we are so up and down. We have moments where we're we're like crushing some Mav City in the car, singing Great is Thy Faithfulness, we are loving it, we're, we're, and then the next moment we're falling back into the same old sin. But the good news is that God doesn't change. He doesn't change. And here, even though the clock seems to be ticking, God is going to come through. And when we think about God causing them to wait and causing them to just year after year after year wonder if he's going to come through. What might God be doing? I believe that God is leaving no doubt about who is going to work here. He's leaving no doubt by which, by the way that they're going to have a son, by the way that an inheritance is going to come, by how the promise is going to be fulfilled, that it's going to be done by his power alone. They had tried to make this happen by their own efforts. They tried to gather their own wealth. They tried to have a child through Hagar. God wants to leave no doubt in our minds that he is the only one who can save. He's the only one who can rescue. He's the only one who can provide. Now, I want to shift the focus over to Hagar because I think we see something really beautiful here. Verse 7, it says, The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness the spring on the way to Shur. Now, she's running towards Shur, which is on the way towards Egypt. She's going southwest. And here she is, she's trying to go home. She's trying to get away and get back to what's familiar. And so the first question here is, who is the angel of the Lord? Now, generally, when the Bible is referring to the angel of the Lord, it is talking about God himself revealing himself to his people. And Hagar recognizes this because in verse 13, she said, believes it is God speaking to her. You are a God of seeing. It's very similar to the burning bush in Exodus, that God himself is speaking. But I also want you to notice this. It says, the angel of the Lord 
found her. What does that mean that the angel of the Lord was doing? He was looking. He was pursuing. He was coming after her. And he asked her two questions. He said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where are you come? Where do you have you come from? And where are you going? Where have you come from? In other words, what are you avoiding? Where are you going? What do you think you're looking for when you get there? Those are really, really good questions. Because what those questions are doing is they're getting at her heart. And when we run away from our problems, we have to ask the question, what am I avoiding? What am I running from? And then what do I think I'm going to gain by where I'm running to? Love that she responds. She's at the end of verse 8. I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. And then in verse 9, this is just pretty amazing. He doesn't tell her she's right. She doesn't, he doesn't say, well, you know, Sarai's kind of a jerk. Like, she needs her morning coffee. I don't know what's wrong with her. He doesn't say that. He says, go back. Now, I want to be really careful here. This is not a proof text for somebody going back to an abusive relationship. Not that at all. This is actually a great question for our next Q&A, which we'll have hopefully next month. But God's solution was not to remove her from hardship, but to show that he was with her in the middle of her hardship. God's solution was not to remove her from a hard place, but to show that he could bless her in a hard place. Verse 10, the angel of the Lord said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and you shall, and be, you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, which means God hears. Because the, because the Lord has listened to your affliction, he shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. This poor servant girl God comes to because God has a heart for the lowly to lift them up. His name meaning God hears. And there's, there's this beautiful response that she has in verse 13. It says, you are a God of seeing. For she said, truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called Ber Lahai Roy, which means, which means the well, well of the living one who sees me. Between Kadesh and Bered, God hears those who feel unheard and sees those who feel unseen. And it makes me wonder if the reason that we run toward impatient decisions and sinful decisions is we think that God no longer hears us and that God no longer sees us. He no longer sees us in the middle of our troubles. But we have a promise in 1 John 5 where it says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask everything according to his will, he hears us. The gospel is the answer for those who feel unseen and unheard. Because God looked down on us, seeing our helplessness, seeing us wandering, and gave his son to die in our place. We see this when Jesus looked at the crowd. And as Jesus looked at the crowd, what was the emotion that filled his heart? He was overwhelmed with compassion for the lost. And what this means is no matter how bad you messed up, no matter how impatient the decision was, no matter how sinful you think you are, there is grace to be had for you through Jesus our Savior. And we see this grace play out in two ways. Number one is we see grace for the nations. God still sees and hears Hagar. This, this led to, to, to Arab and Muslim people 
who were not part of the covenant family, but God was calling them to himself. In fact, and, and God is in, in rapid numbers, more than we've ever seen, calling people from the Muslim faith to faith in Christ. And if you look, Operation World actually says that the fastest growing gospel movement in the world is happening in Iran. In the last 20 years, it has gone from 5,000 followers of Jesus to nearly a million. God is not done with Hagar's son. This is why we give to missions. This is why we go on missions, to tell those who do not yet know Jesus that there is life to be found in him. But also that there's grace for you. There's grace for you when you feel like you have no direction. And there's grace for you if you've never placed your hope and trust in Jesus. What are you doing to deal with your mistakes? What are you doing to deal with your sins? What are you doing to deal with the guilt and shame that come with them? And we need to understand that Jesus offers grace for anyone who will trust him. Will you trust God, the one who sees and hears and sent his son for you? Let's pray.